All right, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to leave Romans for today and preach a message on the Father's mandate. Uh, just a, a message to our, our great fathers that we have here today. I told my wife we don't need to do anything for Father's Day. We get enough appreciation all year long. And uh, she, doesn't, she doesn't think so. But uh, we, we, we like to celebrate the mothers, but we're going to celebrate the fathers a little bit today. I want to start with just some, some things from Scripture for fathers to encourage you to be strong and continue as you uh, live for the Lord in your faith. From Ephesians chapter 5, point number 1 in your notes is love your wife. Ephesians 5, verse, let's start in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Husbands, love your wives. I want to just give you three points under that. Number one, pray for her. I know uh, I meet a lot of men who uh, talk to me about their wives in confidence, and a lot of times they have a great concern for their wife in some area, and, and maybe even a desire for their wife to be different in some area, and I think the answer to that is prayer. Uh, you can't change her any more than she can change you. Uh, that's the Lord's work. And so to pray for your wife every day, if you don't pray for anything else, to pray for your wife every day would be one of the most powerful things you could do as a husband. I encourage you to do that. Also, to pursue your wife, to pursue her, is to chase after her like you did back in the day. <laughs> when uh, Proverbs often refers to the wife and the husband, and he calls her... Basically, your young doe and your older deer. That's, it's the same deer, but back when you met her and she still had spots. So <laughs> the time when she was much larger and she had had children and she was, I don't mean that larger, I mean larger, <laughs> I mean larger as a deer. I'm, and, and try not to say things like wow. I just said. We might want to stop. Don't call your wife large. That's point number three. It's not in your notes. But it's in your still learning. Ooh, I'm still learning. Not you, honey. I didn't mean you. Oh, I'm getting in deep trouble. Deep trouble. Uh, oh, pursue her. Chase after her. You know, when you have children especially, even if you don't have children, when you do have children, what we often find out ourselves doing as men is the most urgent thing. And a lot of times the most urgent thing is revolving around our children. Uh, something they need or something they're involved in and some, or something they're doing. But to pursue your wife and your relationship with her means to date her, to get alone with her, to do things special for her, to compliment her. I mean, we could go on and on. But to uh, basically continue to court her like you did in the early days is a beautiful thing. There's nothing more precious 
than an older man still loving his wife. Isn't that true when you see that? My wife points it out often to me when we see a little elderly couple walking somewhere and they're holding hands. You don't see that. So uh, I'm going to have to remember that one day when we get old. <laughs> Pursue her. And then the last one is love her. And I'm just going to go back to the scriptures here in Ephesians chapter 5. When you love her, it says in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. There's a there's a, a relationship established in verse 23 that the way Jesus is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the wife. And one of the things I see there is this, this mirroring effect. The church is to be like Jesus, and the church follows Jesus' footsteps and is conformed into the image of Jesus. And men, you need to know... There's something spiritual about that in your relationship with your wife. If you see a, a character flaw or something in her, a lot of times that's a mirror reflection because you're the head and she's the body. If you see something in her you wish was different, it's probably because that same character or that same issue is, is present in your own life. And so this head and body relationship is key. But then look down at Verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. There's a lot of responsibility here put on the husbands to give. He says gave himself for her. Jesus as the head gave himself for the church and we as the head must give ourselves for our wives and this loving her has to do with giving. Our wives are great at giving. Men, sometimes not so much. And so to be a giving husband, and I mean giving in the, in the areas of helps and being a caregiver and, and things like that, this is actually how you love your wife. You say, John, I'm struggling with this. I love my wife, but she don't think I do. Start helping her, and, and she will think you do. This, is, this giving of yourself to her is the way you love her. But not only did Jesus give himself, but he also took, didn't he? What did he take? He went to the cross. And he took all our sins on him. He was a taker. And he took all our bad on himself. And for the husband to be loving his wife, he will take whatever's bad. that you, If you're sitting there and you could drop me a list of bad, I can't, honey, about you. But if you could sit there, I'm trying to get out of the hole. And you could write a list of things that you don't like about her. You are to take that upon yourself and to carry those things, carry them back to that place of prayer back to that place where you're trying to be a godly example and take those things as the man. That's what it means to be a man who loves his wife. He will give to her the needs and the helps that she needs, and he will take from her her problems, her burdens, her woes, and carry those things as a strong Christian man. So husband, if, if you're going to be a great father, then the first place to start is be a great husband. Love your wife. The most destructive thing that will ever happen to our children, the most destructive thing that will ever happen to our children is for them to realize or to believe that their mother and their father doesn't love each other. That's, that has consequences in their life. Number two, men care for your soul. This comes from Mark chapter 8, verse 36 and 37. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? 
Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Here again, God uses a balance, not a scale, but a balance where you put one thing on one side and the other thing on the other side and you weigh them against each other. And he says here, what does it matter if a man, or what good is it if he gains the whole world? So on this side of the balance, he's placing the whole world, everything you could desire, whether that's a home or a car or finances or whatever those things may be, you put all that on this side, success in business. So what if you gain all those things and put on this side your soul, but lose your soul? It does not profit you. It's no good if you lose your soul, even if you gain everything else. Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, what can you do to buy it back? Once it's lost, your soul, what can you do to get it back? You can't do anything to buy it back. And so that is the most precious thing you have, your soul. The point of that is, you must be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And men need Jesus. More than ever in our society, men need Jesus. And so to be sure that you're saved is, is first of all in caring for your soul. But then under that comes a, a Christian man who's trying to be a good husband and trying to be a godly father. Fathers need God's peace and God's purity in our own lives. When you lose as a man, when you lose your own peace with God, and when you lose your own purity with God, your, your life is full of confusion. And you become a man of poor judgment. You know this? If you're not walking with God, but you're walking in, in the pleasures of your sin, you become a man of poor judgment. Poor judgment in business, but even more importantly, Poor judgment when it comes to being a husband and poor judgment when it comes to being a father. You don't feel right about your walk with God, so no other decision feels right or seems right. This bondage that you can live in to sin, sometimes in men's lives it lasts months. Sometimes in men's lives it lasts years. I'm a pastor, I know what I'm talking about. Sometimes in men's lives there's a bondage to sin, a distance from God, that last years, and the result, ladies, is you end up living with a man who's a Christian, but he's ill-tempered, he's not satisfied with life, he's confused about making decisions, and he has no boldness in Christianity, he's filled with timidity, and as far as a father and a husband, the, the end result of that probably looks like he's just absent. He's there, but he's not there. That's quoting my wife. He's there, but he's not there. He's absent, and he's confused. And so a man who's living like this will often misinterpret the direction of God, the design of God, and the presence of God. Things will be happening in your life, and you will not even understand what's going on, and the deep, deep desire of a man is filled with fear because he's not right with the living God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says, Now no chastisement seems to be joyful for the present, but painful Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to, do, to those who have been trained by it. Sometimes God does something in a man's life like this to wake him up and allow him to see that it's not okay to keep living like that year after year. And the place that a lot of times he does, let me say it a different way, the person that a lot of times he uses to wake them up is his wife or his children, one of his children. Do you know that in King David's life, he had a personal sin. And about the same time, his son Absalom had a personal sin. The Bible teaches us that King David, because of his personal sin, 
did not speak to his son Absalom about his sin for two years, which ended up in Absalom turning against David and killing one of his brothers. The Bible is pointing out that a man who is a father who's living in sin will not correctly will not correct his own children. He'll allow them to linger in sin because he feels like it would be hypocritical or wrong to confront their sin because his sin has consumed his life. Men, if you're living in this kind of state, you must know, even though things seem okay in your marriage and things seem okay with your children, things are not okay. It is as if you were an absentee parent. You're not seeing clearly with the wisdom that a God-given father would have if you were walking with a living God and you, you need to return to him before something goes awry. And then when the peace of God, when you repent and get right with the living God, when the peace of God returns and you experience the forgiveness of God and deliverance from your sin, you will have a settled heart, a settled spirit, and God will give you wisdom to know what to do, what not to do, what to say, and what not to say, and you'll have a confidence as you go forward as a father like you did not have when you were living in sin. Wisdom comes from God, and it helps us to make decisions and do things that are right. And I don't know about you, but there's nothing anymore in this old world that I needed the wisdom of God for than being a husband and being a father. And the devil likes to lie to you and say that you can live at a distance from God and still be a good husband and a father, but that's not the truth. We need God, amen? We need Him every day. Every one of us men need Him. You say, well, I know so-and-so, he's a good guy. I don't care how good he is without the Lord. He's not going to do the right things and say the right things and be the right kind of father God wants him to be. And so care for your soul if you care at all about your children. If you won't do it for you, do it for your wife or for your children. Return to the Lord and walk with Him. There's no better place to be. And it's the best thing that will happen to your family if you'll do that. Number three, care for the souls of your children. Let me restate, I'm going to restate that verse we read a minute ago, and I'm going to say it in a different way, okay? What good would it be to gain the whole world instead of saying, yet forfeit your soul, I'm going to say, yet forfeit the souls of your children. I know that's not what the Bible says, but I'm, 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 I'm putting that in there. Put on this side the scale, the whole world, and on this side of the scale, the souls of your children, and then finish those verses. What would you give in exchange for the souls of your children? In other words, our children need conversion. They need to be saved. And what would you give in exchange for them? I know as a parent, when you have a child, we will spend as much money as we have to make them happy, won't we? I know we will. I encourage parents to decrease your wealth when you have children. Somehow, buy land, do something so you don't have as much spendable money. Because human nature, even, out of love for our children, we will buy for them things we shouldn't. Amen? We will, we, because we love them so much, that, and, and really... Even though buying for them sometimes is sacrificially, you know, in, a, in this sense, that is one of the easier things to do. Buy them something. What would you give in exchange for their soul? You can't buy their soul. You can't buy that back. They need conversion. Mark chapter 1 verse 15 says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
John chapter 3, verse 3, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And so, knowing that your children need to be saved as a man, you must understand the gospel, you must understand the cross, and that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for us, for our sins, in our place. You must understand that the result is justification. I'm using big words, but you don't have to use big words. You need to understand that when you get saved, you're made right with the living God. You have peace with the living God. You then can talk to God and pray with God and walk with God. And so as a man, we must constantly talk about sin and forgiveness with our children. It must be a daily conversation pointed out in the spheres of life that we live in. We must constantly talk about heaven and hell and that they're real. There must be the issues of repentance brought up from time to time where you must turn from your sin and turn back to God. And so in this understanding of conversion and the need of the gospel, I want to lift up the doctrine of regeneration to us this morning. I'm going to paint for you two scenarios. I've wanted to do this for some time in our church, but I haven't. And I've wanted to do it because we have so many young children in our church today and we praise God for the, the children that are in this church. We are, do you know how blessed we are as a church to have as many young children as we have? Do you know? I mean, really, do you know? Have you talked to people at other churches and, and them say, we have no church, children anymore. We have one family with children. We have children everywhere. I mean, I just looked around. They're everywhere. That is a blessing from God. But with that blessing comes responsibility. I'm going to give you, here's the first scenario. Imagine one night this summer when your son or your daughter comes home from a children's meeting of some sort. Maybe they uh, were at some other church's VBS or maybe they were at some Christian church uh, sports ministry or, or whatever the case may be. They come home and they show you a card that says they've invited Jesus into their heart. It has a date on it. It has an adult's signature on it, and it and they say, Daddy, I got saved today. They're six or seven years old. Daddy, I got saved today at this church. Maybe the signature on there is one of their grandparents who don't come to this church. What are you, what are you going to do? Do you believe your child is a Christian at that moment? And they really understand what it means to be saved at that moment. Is it enough that somebody somewhere got them to pray a prayer and ask to be saved as a little child? I'm going to suggest to you that it is not enough. It is not enough. Evidence of a changed life is crucial, especially in dealing with our children. I want, you to, I want you to know this. I, I encourage you to use other outlets to, that your children can go to that's going to teach them the Word of God and uh, let them experience some sort of Christian atmosphere. But out of all the children in our church today, I met, I met a man this week, and he said, you guys don't have children worshiping in a different location than your adults? I said, no, because I've got about this big. He said, what do you do during the service? Do you speak a children's message? I said, no. 
He said, what are they doing in there? <laughs> he said, you don't have, he said, you don't have hardly any children, do you? I said, yeah, we got a lot of them. He said, what are you doing in there? He couldn't fathom the idea of children just sitting here. Let me say this to you. I could take all these children in our church into the back room, and I promise you, with the right manipulation, I could get over half of them today to raise their hand saying they wanted to be saved. And to pray a prayer asking God to save them. Over half of them. Maybe, maybe close to all of them. I could do that today with the right manipulation. Y'all, do y'all believe that? And I could have them fill out a card and I could sign my name on it and put a date on it. And I could send it home with them and tell you that they're safe. What are you supposed to do with that as a parent? That's, that's the society we live in. I'm going to give you a different scenario. Maybe it's not that dramatic. Your child is listened to, to the message today. <laughs> and they have questions about God and questions about being saved and, and things like that. And you're excited because they have those kind of questions. What are you supposed to think about that? Does that mean they're almost saved? Or does that mean they got saved today? How do you respond to your uh, little child when that kind of thing happens? You had a couple points to talk about, and then we'll come back to that question. The first one is conviction. Conviction is, is something that the Spirit of God does within your heart when He couples up right and wrong with Scripture and declares to you something is wrong or something is right. In the development of our children, fathers play the most important role in this area of conviction. It is in this area, men, that you can cooperate with the Holy Spirit by doing this simple thing, teaching and reading the Bible to your children. If you teach and read the Bible to your children, the law of God is being presented to their heart and to their mind. And in doing that, you allow the Spirit of God then to come in and lift up the Word of God and bring conviction on their little heart. Does that make sense? If they have no understanding of the Word of God, no understanding of things that God says is right and wrong, then you're not working with the Spirit of God to bring about conviction in their life. If you're only saying, do this because Daddy says for you to do it, then one day when they go astray, there's nothing to bring them back except love for you. If you're saying, do this because God says for them to do it, then one day, whether you live or die, it is their, their attachment to Obedience and righteousness is to God and not to you. It's far more powerful. And so as you teach the Bible to your children, you work with the Spirit in allowing the Spirit then to use the law of God to, to bring the burden of wrong upon their heart in, in a thing that we call conviction. It is necessary to know the law in order to know sin. There is no salvation, however, without knowing Jesus. It is at that point when it moves from conviction to knowing Jesus that you can't do what needs to be done. You can talk about Jesus, you can teach about Jesus, you can teach about the cross. But it is God himself that must present a love for God and open up their heart in the in the sense of what John chapter 3 says where they are newborn. They are created from above. And that's what the word regeneration means. Regeneration is when God gives life to a dead soul. 
He takes that which was dead and he makes it alive. Parents cannot do that. Fathers cannot do that. Only God can do that. He says it in John. He says that to be saved is not a human decision. John chapter 1 verse 13. And he compares it to the wind. He says the spirit is like the wind blowing where he desires. God may save one child at one age and another at another age. And it's not a declaration of how good or bad the parent is. It is this, that under the determination of God that he chooses to bring life where there was death. Some parents want to feel more godly because their children get baptized at a younger age. Listen, that does not make you more godly. What will make you more godly is teaching the word of God to your children. That's, that's, that's the place to start. You know that in our early days as Lighthouse Church, we were at the point of evaluating our church and seeing where we stand. How successful are we as a church? You know what we did? Some of you may have been here back then. We passed out a card to everyone here. The children, the wives, and the men. And we asked this question. How many men are, are having some sort of Bible reading with their family? Had to check for daily, weekly, monthly. We asked how many men are praying with their family regularly, daily, weekly, monthly. We asked people to sign their name to it, who filled it out. Sometimes a man said he was doing it a lot. His wife said he wasn't doing it at all. <laughs> Sometimes a man said he was doing it some, and his children said he wasn't doing it at all. We took those cards back, and we learned a lot from that and we begin to pray for our families specifically in, in this area. This is what makes us a great church, men. You. Not how many children we have or how many great women we have. How many men do we have here who uphold the, the, the stance for Jesus in your home by teaching your children to be the way you are in love and passion for a living God? That's what determines whether or not we're a great church. Nothing else, not our music, not how great I preach. It, it, it all falls on us as men. What kind of family are we leading? And so when we talk about regeneration, we're talking about a changed life. A life which was dead and now is alive. And so as a parent, when we go back to those scenarios, they come home, they've got this card that's been filled out. You are to encourage them and not discourage them, but you are not to give them assurance that they're saved. It's not for you to assure them they're saved. You're to encourage them that if they are saved, they will live differently than they were living the day before by the power of the Spirit working in them. Let me give you an example. I've gone over this before where I named the, the main sin of my four children. And I'll let you guess who was who. I'm going to pick on one without calling the name today. But we had one that was a little liar, okay? And you may know who that is over the years. We may have talked about that too much. But we had one that was a little liar. And if the little liar got saved, then the difference is we would stop hearing so many lies. I'm trying not to even say he or she, okay? We would stop hearing so many lies from that person. Does that make sense? If they got saved. But what we're not looking for is just the fact that Cindy and I could discuss and say, well, you know, they're not lying so much. What we're looking for is a maturity to happen to where that person could come and say, God's convicted me over lying. 
I'm not lying as much. I'm sure that God's Spirit is working in me because I was about to lie right there and the Spirit of God told me that was wrong and gave me the power not to lie right there. And then we're starting to see them testify to us about themselves of their own assurance of their salvation. And I'm going to use a different word now, affirmation. It is our job to affirm them only when they can assure us of their own assurance of their salvation. Does that make sense? So it takes some maturing to happen, some, some, some growing to happen to where that child becomes, I'm not going to give an age, but I'm going to say old enough to know for sure that the Spirit of God is working in them and to know for sure that the Spirit of God has brought life in them. And it's only at that point that we would assure them of their salvation. I wrote some things down. I don't want to misspeak it here. There's no sense of being held back. Rather, you're encouraged to do to your children what every person does when they repent and believe in Jesus. Continue doing that. If they come home with that little card, it, it's good that you have tried to ask God to forgive you and believe in Jesus. Let's keep doing that. Our children added this to our evening prayer that we would have every night. There are often praying, God, forgive me. Often praying, God, give me faith. And, and that's what you and I do as men today. We're often praying, God, forgive me, and God, give me faith. But the genuineness of their faith, whether or not it's real, must be known by them before they're given affirmation by you. I read a statistic this week that says that 78%, this is this, 78% of millennials we're getting saved. I'm not trying to pick on a denomination, so I'm not going to name the denomination. In a certain denomination in the United States of America, 78% of those who are getting saved as young children in this denomination in the United States are not returning to church as adults. 78%. Do you know that any children who are here today who live for Jesus until they're at a ripe old age, do you know this? they will suffer persecution in the United States. Right? Their faith needs to be genuine. It must be real. Up until the 1900s, 1,800 years, they would not baptize a person until they were around 18 years old and had a strong affirmation of personal assurance of salvation that could not only be recognized by their parents in those days, but had to be recognized by the whole church. I'm not going that far. But I'm saying as men, you must take these matters seriously and wait until the time that they are sure, that they're sure that God's Spirit has changed them before you affirm them. And at the moment of their affirmation, then we would not hesitate in baptism because that is the biblical model, but not before their affirmation. There's no push for baptism. There is a wait for baptism. You say, well, what, what if that hurts them waiting? Waiting cannot cause them to lose their salvation, but rushing into baptism when they're not saved creates a hindrance, a double hurdle that they've got to overcome then to become saved. I know as a pastor, when I talk to somebody who believes because their parents told them they were saved at this really young age, and now they're standing before me saying, as, as an adult, I know I wasn't saved back then. My life never changed. I lived like a hellion through whatever ages. I need Jesus to save me. 
that person has had a double hurdle to overcome to get to that point of saying, I need salvation. When their parents, their mother and their father said, honey, you're saved. Don't let anybody ever tell you different. And now they're saying, my own soul is telling me different. I've never been saved. And I need Jesus. Just testify my own personal children. I had four, four of them. I think the youngest was baptized at 14. Is that right? Do you know? 15? It was Maggie. How old were you? It was you, right? How old were you? Yeah, how old were you? 14. 14, and the oldest was 18. So in between 14 and 18 is how ours seemed to go. Let me tell you, the one that was 18 was Levi. <laughs> and uh, I fasted and prayed for that boy for two years. Fasted and prayed because he was getting older and harder. Prophet a man if he gains the whole world loses the soul of his children. Number four, disciple and discipline your children. It's the same word in the Bible, disciple and discipline. It means the same thing. We use it differently in our English language, but in, in Bible language it's the same. Disciple a child, a child or discipline a child. Men, Bible lays this responsibility on fathers. We read you two extremes of parenting. I've showed you these before, but give it to you again, authoritarian parents or permissive parents. These are both sides of the extreme. Neither one is right. The authoritarian parent, there is a control and it is, there is control and is based on imposing fear. This parent di disciplines the negative without regard for correction. Does not train or instruct towards righteousness. So you only give discipline for when there's something wrong and you create fear, but you're never teaching what is right and training towards righteousness. That's an extreme that is not right. Then there's permissive parenting. There is no control and is based on imposing happiness. This parent is not interested in correcting evil or training good. Conflict avoidance is the goal. So long as the child is happy is the goal. That's a permissive parent. That's another extreme. The Bible teaches discipline or disciple. It's the same word. They both come from the Latin word meaning disco, which means to get to know something. Discipline refers to a process by which one learns a way of life. A disciple was like an apprentice who was learning a trade or a craft from a master. A good church example here would be Eric and Jack. Eric started a new business in windows and doors. He takes Jack with him every day. Eric is, the, is the, the, the disciple, and Jack is the apprentice learning the trade that Eric already knows really well. And Jack had a lot to learn. Come up and under Eric and learn all those things. How did he do it? He goes with him every day. There must be a relationship between them. There is a discipline where a learner becomes a disciple. Within this relationship, the master leads and the learner goes through this process of discipline until he can imitate what the master does. And he knows it as well as the master knows it. In the Old Testament, there is a covenant between God and his people. And he was called the master, the king of kings, and we were called the learners. God does this in scripture in many relationships. He uses parents, judges, kings, 
prophets, wise men to teach this example of a disciple and a, dis, a, a learner. In the New Testament, we have the same example set by Jesus and his 12 apostles. He discipled or disciplined them through the same master-learner relationship. So the discipline is to teach or train by rewarding a right heart and correcting a wrong heart. Fathers, we must be the dis disciplined disciple-makers of our own children. You know what this requires? Your time. Lots of your time. You can't raise your child distant from you and then think that you're going to be happy with him and he's going to think like you or believe like you or love Jesus like you if you're never with him. Number five, lead in family worship. Still talking to fathers. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we find... These statements to young Timothy, he says this, In last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, without self-control, headstrong, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Our culture is constantly striving to sweep in and steal your children's minds away. Family devotions or some sort of family atmosphere where you turn to God must be present in a godly father's home. I'll give you two kinds of these devotions. They're structured devotions. That is, you have a regular pattern of family getting together. For us, when our children were little, I mean like two, three, four, five, we would meet in the hall outside their room. I think back then we were going through the Ten Commandments. We spent a long time on that, just reading the Ten Commandments. We memorized the Ten Commandments, and then we would have prayer, and then we would wrestle. That's what we did. I'm talking about wrestle. That was our evening time. We don't sing. We don't get to sing. Abigail could lead us in singing now, but we couldn't do that back then. As they got older, we did the same thing. I remember going through the book of Proverbs. We'd read a proverb, have discussions, have questions. Then we'd pray, then we'd wrestle. That's what we did every night. I'm not saying you got to wrestle, that's not necessarily biblical, but we're just, that's how we closed our time out in the evening. I'm saying have a pattern, make it your own. Maybe yours is you sit down and you go over some scripture, then you pray, then you go feed the horses. Maybe as you sit down and read some scriptures, then you pray, and then you go shoot some basketball. I don't know, you make it your own. And then you go to bed. Or, or maybe you do yours in the morning. But have some sort of structured devotion. There's also unstructured devotions. That is where everywhere you go and everything you do, we've talked about this many times, creation, creation is this theater of God's glory. Men as fathers are constantly pointing out the glory of God in the sunset and the sunrise and the crop that's grown. Son, can you believe that we just put a seed in there a few months ago and now look at this plant that's grown from it? In a meal that's served, you're creating, you're, you're displaying the glory of God and speaking of it, men, to your children, to your family. Prayers are a vital part of this unstructured devotion where you as a family take it upon yourself to pray with your children, men. You don't have to be able to pray out loud in this church, but you should be able to pray out loud in your home 
You should be able to lead your family in prayer and call upon God in front of your children, in front of your wife. You need four points on the Father's role in, in this worship. This is the absolute most vital form of leadership a father can exercise in his family, leading them to the word and to prayer. If he feels ill-equipped or not ready to do so, then you, can, you need to get rid of that. If we've got enough homeschooled parents here, how many of you homeschooled parents like me, you're teaching English, and while you're teaching English, what were you doing? You were learning English, <laughs> right? You were teaching math, and while you were teaching math, you were learning math. Men, I don't care if you didn't grow up in church, God gave you some children, you can teach the Bible, and you can learn the Bible while you teach the Bible. God will give you the strength. Mothers, you should let your husband lead, even if you know more scripture than he knows and more answers than he knows. Fathers, we must fill ourselves with the word of God and our love for God in order to fill our children with the word of God and love for God. There should be no greater motivation for a man to walk with the Lord, the living God, than his own children and his own family. Number six, men bring your family to church. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, Do not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another the more as you see the day drawing near. He's talking about the day of the Lord when the day comes back. If you can agree with me today that the day of the Lord coming back is nearer and nearer and it's on the precipice, then, then this verse says don't neglect coming to church in the process. I'm directing this at men in particular. Our children need to know that daddy wants to go to church. Our children need to know that daddy desires to be at God's house. We have a father who loves to worship God. Philippians chapter 4 verse 9 says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace will be with you. Fathers must be able to say that in regards to worship to their children. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. Love God. Worship God. Sing to God. As our children grow older and get in our cars, men... They pay attention to what station we're listening to or what song list we're listening to. And they know if something's more important to us than God. The greatest stumbling block for children in worship is that their parents do not desire that time. The parents may do it because they feel like they're supposed to or feel like they have to. There's a, there's a great gap between that and a dad who says, today, Sunday, we're going to church. We get to worship God and is excited about it. And there's also a closeness of being together in, in church that our, our church has, from its foundation, tried to encourage. And that's one of the reasons we have the children in here. We want to keep your family together when you come to worship. There's no better place to be together than at God's house on Sunday worshiping God. Imagine the cumulative effect of 650 worship services. Yeah, I did the math. Between the age of 4 and 17 years old, 650 worship services with your parents 
singing to Jesus and hearing from the word of God, that 650 days is priceless. I want my children to know and learn how to worship from me and not from other little children. I want them to see how I sing even though I can't sing. How I worship even though I can't sing, I can still worship God. How my head bows and sometimes my knees bow. I want them to see that I love to listen to the Word of God, to read the Word of God. I want them to know that I love to hear the preaching of the Word of God, even though I don't like to be a preacher. <laughs> Something beautiful about a family sitting together in church, father or mother with their hand around their son or daughter, sharing the Bible together and singing together and declaring the glory of God. It is not insignificant in their life. Fathers, I encourage you, be the men that God has called us to be. God has given us some great men in our church. Our greatest danger is to go through the motions and not be real, not be genuine in our walk with God. Let's not let it be so. All right, as we stand, wait for just a second. As we stand, I want all the children go to the back room with Cindy. It's, it's, not, it's not about it. They preached about they have, a little, they have a little gift for Father's Day that they're going to get for their fathers. And while they're doing that, we'll stand and we'll sing together. Let's stand.